If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, the 8th of May, is the 75th anniversary of VE Day, when the Second World War came to an end in Europe. So in this episode, we're taking an in-depth look at the war and how it affected Britain. Our guest is Professor Dan Todman of Queen Mary, University of London. Dan is the author of a two-volume history about Britain at war, and the second part, covering the years 1942-47, to has just been published. He spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. So, Dan, the book begins in 1942. What is the state of Britain's war effort at this point, And why did you feel that this was a good time to split your two books? I'm going to answer those in reverse order. So it's a, the, the, the splitting of the two books actually reflects the structure of the war. So uh, the period that I looked at in the first book from about 1937 until the end of 1941 is really, in terms of Britain's war... Uh, about a rising European challenge. And I mean, that's that's part of a global breakdown in security. But the focus becomes increasingly on what's happening in Europe. 
uh, and then the fighting of um, uh, an Anglo-French-German uh, war that changes dramatically in 1940, uh, but which remains fundamentally European. And what happens in the period 40 to 41 is that that European conflict uh, expands and connects with the conflict that's been happening in Asia since the uh, the Japanese attack on China in 1937 as well. So you, this is the point where the war really goes global, but it's also a point where you have to change the way that you tell the story of Britain's war. So a volume focused on uh, the kind of the key moment of 1940, the key punctuation point of 20th century British history, can stay very focused on the British and what's happening in the UK. In the second half of the war, if you're going to understand that, the the picture has to be more global because increasingly the decisions that are being made uh, around the world are ones that are not being made just in London, they're being made in Washington or in Moscow or at the great conferences between the Allied leaders. And it's those that are really going to affect uh, what's happening to the UK. So part of the story then is Britain having a point where it can still influence world history uh, in 1940 versus its situation by 1945, where although in some ways its military power is greater than it's ever been, actually its ability to influence geostrategic power has been greatly reduced by the consequences of that second half of the war. Okay, so then the, the first bit of your question, <laughs> uh, which was about Britain's situation. What's odd, if you look in late 1941, is how relatively good Britain's situation looks whilst the war remains confined uh, to Europe. That, you know, British economic mobilisation has really got underway, aid's arriving from the Americans with the promise of more of it. The Americans aren't in the war yet, uh, and that poses a problem for the scale of economic effort that the the United States will be able to make. But uh, it's not diverting anything to uh, anywhere else. The uh, Nazi attack on the Soviet Union has opened up a different front uh, in the European conflict. It looks by December 1941 as if the USSR will be able to hold out against that. So, you know, Britain's situation looks relatively good. It's in the position to launch its first really big offensive of the war uh, in the Middle East. So, you know, things from that point of view seem like not that the war is going to be easy, but at least that there's a route to survival in a way that perhaps there hadn't been in the darkest moments of 1940. But then the opening of the, the war between Japan and the, the Western colonial powers in Southeast Asia and the Pacific throws a spanner into those works completely. It causes great problems for the British about how to allocate resources across the, the world, how they can move forces in a timely fashion to protect their empire. So suddenly, just at the point where things had looked like they were stabilising a bit, everything's thrown into upheaval again. And one of the problems is that the American support, which they fought so hard to win, is now going to be divided between those two different conflicts and and allocated, of course, for American interests rather than for those of the UK. And do you think here in Britain we've paid enough attention to the non-European side of the war and how much that meant for Britain? No, with some exceptions. So I always get a bit nervous when we talk about what, what do we think about the war because one of the things that becomes quickly apparent when you immerse yourself into the different historical subcultures that exist around the Second World War is that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a huge reservoir of knowledge and uh, expertise out there, lots of it outside uh, universities, lots of it specialising in bits of the war that aren't Europe. Right? That being said, the sort of the story as it's commonly commemorated, uh, as it's frequently represented in, in national level media, the sorts of stories that tend to come down are about the European war, 
they've also chronologically focused on the start of the conflict, I think, or the period from D-Day until victory in Europe. So there's a sort of, you know, it's not just that there's a gap uh, geographically in space. There's also one chronologically about what happens to that middle period of the war between the end of the Blitz in 1941 and the return to, to Europe in 1944, where it's almost like a kind of uh, somebody's cut those bits of the film strip out. And I think, you know, one of the positives that's happened about the the positive things that's happened about the way that um, uh, Britons commemorate both world wars is the way in which military service has come to be seen in a much more global way, a much more inclusive way. So it, people are much more likely now to know that uh, there were soldiers from around the British Empire fighting against the Axis powers uh, in the Second World War or against the, the Central Powers in the First World War. But... I think that there's a there's another gap there in terms of thinking through the implications of that. So thinking about Britain at war, in fact, being the British Empire at war, on what that means about the way in which the British state wielded power around the globe and about who power was wielded on and about what the effects of the war are for imperial home fronts. So you know, you've seen that very clearly in discussions of the revitalization of the memory of the Second World War in in pandemic lockdown. Is that you know, what's called to mind? It's the Blitz or it's rationing, and people remember the the Second World War as being a time when there was rationing and restrictions. But actually, there isn't a great sense. I think that what happened for the British Home Front was the preservation of of material and and food plenitude compared to the rest of the planet. So if you compare Britain to what's happening in the Middle East, where inflation's running riot and food supplies have been badly affected, let alone what happens in India, uh, actually Britain's memory of the Second World War should be about everybody having enough to eat. It's an extraordinary achievement in global terms. And in part, it's achieved because the British state prioritises its own people uh, over those in the empire for whom it had responsibility. As you point out, nowadays, a lot of people tend to focus on the European aspects of the conflict. But during the war itself, Britain's leaders and and its people at large, how interested were they in what was going on beyond Europe? Oh, that's a really good question. So the the British people are much more focused on what's happening closer to home. And the war, particularly after the end of the Blitz, looks and feels a long way away. And I think that, you know, anybody on the British home front is still subject to the risk of German air raids, although after May 1941, the the, the intensity of those dramatically decreases for the next three years. They're still experiencing all sorts of war-related disruptions. But whereas in the summer of 1940, Britain is at the centre of global events, everybody's worried about an invasion happening imminently. By the end of 1941, the focus of the war has moved to the Eastern Front, or it's moved to uh, North Africa, or it's moved to um, Southeast Asia. So you know, it's not quite that Britain's left as a backwater, but that the the emotional intensity, I think, dies down a bit. And that's definitely a problem for Britain's leaders that they're talking about by 1942, which is how do you keep people motivated when they're pretty certain that they're going to win, but the end of the war is obviously a long way away, and they're not under the immediate threat of, of enemy attack. And that's very natural, isn't it? You know, that all of us, you might be aware of all sorts of global events, but actually... You know, what do you focus on most imminently? It's the things that are closest to you affecting your person. The one thing I think we might say that stands out as an example of continued international engagement is the sense that something really dramatic is happening on the Eastern Front and that a lot of the fighting and the dying is done being done by the people of the Soviet Union. 
and I think there's a very interesting historical phenomena there, which is the uh, the degree of enthusiasm for the, the Soviet Union that there is in Britain during the middle part of the Second World War. And that's not limited to... Um, the British left by any means. So it's not just people who were communists. It's a much more widespread feeling. And I think it relates to all the things that can be projected onto the USSR uh, as a as a kind of idealistic space. So it's not that they actually, you know, in historical retrospect, it seems bizarre that in the middle of the, a fight against one appalling mass murderer, the British people make a hero out of another, Joseph Stalin, right? But it's not, I think, I think it says more about what they'd want their own country to be. The idea is that, you know, why are the Soviets fighting so hard? It's because they've got a country that belongs to them and there's something that they can fight for. And that maybe a post-war Britain should be a country that's worth fighting for in which people feel that they've got more of a stake. So that doesn't really relate to, uh, you know, the lived experience of people under attack in the USSR. But it, it t- tells you a lot about the experience of the British home front. In contrast to that, Britain's leaders are, I think, intensely internationally minded. And actually, that's uh, one of the, the things that I think really stands out. It's very difficult to tell as a as a historian, because you've got to try and give people a sense of all these different interconnecting fronts. But actually, you know, you have to tell that, that strategic story at a very high level in order to explain the decisions that are being made about where can forces be juggled to around the world, and all of these different uh, fighting fronts are interrelated. So, you know, the big difference between American power, as it will be in 1944. In 1944, the thing that's astonishing about the Americans is that they can simultaneously be taking part in this enormous uh, overlord invasion in Europe, and on the other side of the world, be deploying this colossal fleet thousands of miles from its base in order to attack Japanese uh, island bases. And they're the only power that can exert that kind of strategic uh, weight on both sides of the globe at the same time. You know, the Soviets can't do it and the British can't do it. For the British, it's much more about juggling. Well, if you're going to do something in the Middle East, then that means the forces have got to, you know, those are forces you can't be deploying in Asia. Or if you're going to send troops, particularly in the middle part of the war, before the Mediterranean's open again, if you're going to send troops around South Africa in order to get them to Egypt to defend uh, defend the Middle East from attacks from North Africa, those are troops that you can't easily get back home if you need to protect the UK, you need to launch an invasion. So that sense that all of these different areas are connected up uh, is one that, that uh, influences British decisions throughout the war. And how significant in this story is a moment that comes very early in your book, which is the fall of Singapore? Well, simultaneously very significant and and in another way less significant than we might think. So, you know, Singapore is this key symbolic naval base. It's a, a means for Britain to project power into Southeast Asia and ultimately to deter Japan. That deterrent fails and the base falls much quicker than expected at the start of 1942. And the nature of that defeat can be seen as the end of the beginning of the end for the British Empire in South Asia because of all the different dynamics that it sets moving, the way that it transforms the state of Indian nationalism, the way that it creates a threat to India, but also um, uh, encourages a militarisation of Indian society. So it's obviously a key moment. And and yet, uh, although this story will end with the British departure from India and therefore the loss of uh, 
an Indian manpower reserve that was crucial to British global power. British forces will be back in Singapore and they're going to remain there for another 20 years. So it, it's not like British power ends completely with the end of the war, but it's been transformed into something very different. So one of the things I try to to get across is it's too easy to tell a story in which historical eras change kind of with a flick of a switch. You know, fall of Singapore equals end of British Empire. It's not as simple as that. And particularly, it doesn't look as simple as that to people at the time, that actually what the planning that's taking place as the war comes to an end is about how can the British make sure that they're the ones who retake Singapore, that it's not gifted back to them by the Americans. Because as far as the British government's concerned, it needs to rebuild that uh, Southeast Asian empire, particularly Malaya, because it's got all these key resources that are going to be really valuable in the post-war period. Coming on to the military side of the war, what do you think are the most decisive moments for Britain in terms of actually winning the war? Well, I think a pre-war decision to rearm from about 1935 on that means that Britain isn't nearly as defenceless as it looks and is already accelerating uh, its own arms production by the time that the conflict actually breaks out in 1939. The gathering evidence from really from 1939 onwards, but really apparent from, by the end of 1940, that the Americans are going to provide massive material aid. Um, and that, you know, there'll be an issue about how it's paid for and, and what Britain is asked to give up in return, but that those resources are going to be coming. So I think you can see by March 1941, when the Lend-Lease Bill is granted, that Britain is going to be, the British Empire, rather than just Britain, is going to be able to fight a, a massively technological conflict uh, with access to what are effectively totally safe production facilities on the far side of the Atlantic. Uh, so it's, it isn't going to have to face this problem that uh, all of the powers are going to of having their industrial base being under attack. So that you know that's a really key moment for what, what the second half of the war is going to look like. Um, and then in terms of the actual the fighting that takes place through the middle and the end of the war, I'd actually say that the battle at, uh, at Alamein in the end of October 1942 is often posited as a turning point. But actually, I think probably more important is the combination of that with the torch landings on the other side of North Africa uh, a few days later, because what that means is the, the southern coast of the Mediterranean is going to be cleared. There isn't going to be a sort of return to that ding-dong battle that you'd seen uh, taking place in North Africa before. And then I guess uh, you could look for a set of key victories that Britain plays a, a really substantial role in in the the first half into the summer of 43. Those are the ones that I think too often get forgotten. So that's the climactic battle in the Atlantic where a lot of the um, the really hard escort fighting is going to be done by British and Canadian sailors. The victory, the final victory in North Africa really a key defeat uh, in terms of the damage that it's done to Italy because it's going to be you know, play a really important part in helping to put Italy out of the war um, in the uh, later in the year and the bombing attacks that take place against um, German industry and against Italian cities um, in that summer of 1944 not that any of these is decisive and I think very often uh, you know, there's still a, a, a tendency to look for, well, what was the decisive action? And to think if Britain in particular wasn't able to influence decisive effect at a single moment, that it was somehow weak. But actually, all of those are really important in, in turning the war into something that can be won relatively quickly. So I don't think there's ever a risk that um, the Anglo-American alliance is not going to win the war. 
once that's come together, it's clear that victory is going to be achieved. Uh, and then it's a matter of timing. But what those those 43 victories do is to sort of set the clock running on what will victory actually look like in Europe. Yeah, and that's probably enough. I could talk through several others. <laughs> Something you did allude to a little bit earlier is that people were aware that victory was going to happen quite a long time before the end of the war. At what point do you think that uh, Britain's leaders and also then Britain's people felt certain that they would be triumphant? I think they feel that pretty much entirely throughout the war, except for a period of maybe a couple of weeks up to a couple of months in the early summer of 1940. You know, it's, it says a lot for the presumption that comes with prolonged great power and good fortune that actually there is tremendous optimism about Britain coming through it and emerging on the winning side right the way through. And you can see that in measures like what's happening on the stock exchange, whether people are buying uh, uh, national savings certificates, all that sort of thing. People, you know, you, you don't do this stuff if you think you're going to be defeated because <laughs> it just, you know, you, you save the money under the bed instead. I think the question is how quickly is it going to come and what, what, what it's going to cost. And th- one of the things that's clear from, our, you know, once the Americans are in, Obviously, there's much more of expressed optimism. Lots of people who I think privately have been thinking, I, don't, I can't see a way through this, are able to say more publicly, now that the Americans are on our side, now we are going to, you know, it's clear we're going to win. Um, although they might also be muttering the whole time about, well, look at all the things the government's doing wrong. I wish we were more active, like the Soviets are more active, all that sort of thing. Um, something that I think there should be more work on, there's really good work on it for the First World War, not so much for the Second World War, is people's presumptions about how long the war would take. That actually, you know, if you look at the Gallup surveys from the middle part of the war, there's always a substantial part of the population which is thinking, well, within the next year, we'll probably have won. And now, in 1942 or 1943, militarily, that's nonsense. But it's really important to domestic morale and also to how people keep themselves going. And I think a lot of the experience at a popular level of these these great total wars of the 20th century is about coping mechanisms. But how do people cope? They do it by by imagining a future that's better than the one they're in and picking a timescale that, you know, within which they think things might get better. So So being able to say, well, within a year we'll have won. And I think there's a dramatic contrast there if you look at attitudes in Germany, particularly from the summer of 43 onwards, that actually from the summer of 43, quite large parts of the German population, German industrialists, some German military leaders, presume they're going to lose the war. It's just how how awful is it going to be? Is there a chance that they might be able to make a peace in the West before they get overrun from the East? The extraordinary thing about the Second World War particularly in comparison with the First World War, is how long Germany keeps going compared to 1918, where once that moment of pessimism comes, actually it becomes clear that the, the game is not worth a candle for Germany and there's an outbreak of strategic rationality and, and they go out of the war. Well, you know, the thing is that the logic of Nazism is destruction, right? So if, just because you're going to lose the war doesn't mean that you should stop fighting. If you're going to lose, it means you deserve to go down in flames. And therefore, that's that's never going to happen in this second conflict. The victory is only going to come through absolute military defeat. Uh, and that's why the war will keep going on, even when it's apparent what the end point is going to be, um, through to the early summer of 1945 in Europe. And I think that's that also explains a lot of the emotional experience that uh, 
British people have in that final year of the war, when I think they're getting increasingly angry with the Germans, even before uh, the liberation of, of the camps, that actually it's about why aren't they giving up? You know, if if everybody knows that this war is going to end with an Allied victory, why aren't they giving up? And and I think there's a lot of, of fury about that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. VE Day is meant to be a holiday, but it's not a holiday if you're a housewife who's got to go and queue up for bread from the bakers. Or you've got to spend your day making a victory tea for the kids. <laughs> We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And then how much of a challenge was this for the Allied leaders? The fact that they just didn't know when they would achieve victory over either Germany or Japan. Yes, well, I think I think that issue of timing. It's like um, uh, strategies like comedy, isn't it? <laughs> What's the key to, to comedy? Timing. Yeah, I delivered that joke brilliantly. You know, it's, if you know you're going to win, but you don't know when, the problem is how do you organise your effort to achieve that? And to, particularly if you're Britain with relatively limited resources, how do you use them most efficiently and and start thinking about the peace. And it's really obvious to Britain's leaders, I mean, really from 1940, but they really start to grapple with it from from the start of 1942. When peace comes, Britain is going to be in a dire economic situation. It's converted a lot of its um, manufacturing industry to making war weapons. Lend-Lease has allowed it to do even more of that because it hasn't had to buy any of these weapons with exports. It's going to need to grow the export economy really, really quickly. That can only be achieved if you get the point of demobilisation right. But if you get it wrong, then you're weakening military power just at the point when you need to win the war. So I think that one of the things I found most fascinating, actually, in terms of writing the book was trying to recreate that sense of uncertainty for strategic decision makers about when is the end coming exactly. And also that sense that what this is, is a a really difficult rearguard action about trying to preserve British power. And in the end, 
within the compass of the of the time scale of the war they don't do a bad job but the problem is you know that that struggle doesn't end in august 1945 and that's why you've got to carry the book through to 1947 because actually what you see is the the economic and imperial effects of the war really come home to roost in that immediate post-war period extraordinarily the labor government that comes in in july 45 is able to mobilize great popular effort behind industrial reconstruction britain does an amazing job of rebuilding its exports uh the problem is trying to do that at the same point as managing a limited stock of dollars, converting to an American-run financial system around the world, uh, and losing or trying to keep control of an empire which has been brought to the point of collapse is totally unsustainable. So you'll see a whole set of crises playing out in that 45 to 47 period that really help you to understand the war's effects on Britain. It'd be difficult to talk about this period without discussing the figure of Winston Churchill. So from the work you've done, what's your take on him? I started off really not wanting to... If I could have got away with not writing about Churchill at all, I would have done it because, uh, you know, the the mountain of historical scholarship that there is on that topic is so great. And also because I think um, I'm by nature a conciliator and a finder of middle ground, and, and the writing on Churchill tends to take one of two positions. Either he's the uh, greatest prime minister of the 20th century, hero uh, to all Britons, or terrible man, genocidal, racist, maniac, drunkard, uh, strategic incompetent. And in the first volume of these two, I tried to portray him as somebody who was a bit more um, monstrous than I think the popular conception is. So somebody who, while he had great strategic insights, was also subject to, to whims uh, that made him terribly difficult to work with. Because what I wanted to get across is the scale of the feeling of things being very different in 1940 when he comes in. But in fact, of course, one of the astonishing things about Churchill is, you know, despite all those character traits, because of his experience working in government and working with Whitehall, actually, he doesn't disrupt the civil service very much. So, you know, for all that he is monstrous, he's still operating within a set of constraints that make him an effective war leader. And in the course of writing the second book, I became actually much more sympathetic, may be the wrong word, but probably respectful of his capabilities. And what I mean by that is not that I ever found him a, a nice person because some of his attitudes are repellent, but that I don't think you can look at you know, his ability to see a, a grand strategic picture and to grapple and, ha- and to understand international power to which he was incredibly well attuned, I don't think you can look at that and not think, not feel just a sense of awe at his ability to to comprehend most of it. Not that he didn't make numerous mistakes, <laughs> uh, but just anybody just trying to get their mind around everything that the British Empire and the Anglo-American Alliance was doing and to try to direct that in any way, it just that in itself is, a, is an awe-inspiring feat. So hopefully he comes out of this book as a more human figure, but not one whose whose reputation is demolished, but but rather you know one to be seen in a different light. And something that people, I think, particularly outside of the UK, find very strange is the idea that Churchill was this successful war leader and then immediately lost a general election. What do you put the defeat of Churchill and the Conservatives down to in forty five? Well, I put it down to him not being a terribly competent democratic politician, to be honest. He has some characteristics which make him a very good war leader, 
but he's never really interested in how you make democratic politics work. And his view from, from the middle part of the war, you know, even earlier on, really, is that key decisions about the peace can just be put off. And what that means is that he loses the political momentum. And I think often that story is told in terms of Churchill either wanting, you know, him being bound up with the war or him facing such internal struggles with his own party that uh, it was easy for Labour to to capture that ground, particularly the ground about reconstruction opened up by the Beveridge reports. But I think if you cast your eye back earlier in 1942, you can see a point where Churchill is being pressured by ministers on both sides of the of the, the the party political divide to give a vision of what the future will look like, and he's he misses that moment. It's impossible to imagine his predecessor, his wartime predecessor, David Lloyd George, doing the same thing in the First World War, because Lloyd George was a political animal in a way that Churchill wasn't, right? And he wouldn't have cared about the realism of what he was promising. <laughs> so it's not like he was a better person, no a worse person, though. But he would have been able to, to draw back from the military strategic picture, which Churchill constantly wants to embroil himself in, and look forward and think, how do we keep people motivated? And how do I maintain power in the post-war? So first reason for that election defeat is a Churchillian failure. The second reason is the way that the Labour Party is able to use the moment and particularly the way that it it can demonstrate its its patriotic responsibility and its ability to deliver what people wanted. And I guess what people wanted is the the third part of that, that after this, this great conflict in which people had had to make numerous sacrifices of different forms, they wanted a different version of the peace. You know, are they all socialist? I'm not sure. Um, you know, it would be very, be very like the Labour Party to spend a long time now discussing exactly what socialism means. I think what happens is they they want a future that's better. They want one that's more secure. They want one in which the state is going to play a greater role to remove the uncertainties of the past. And all of those things, for lots of them, it looks much more likely like Labour will deliver on those than the Conservative Party. It's what both parties are effectively promising in that 45 election. It's just how exactly they're going to do it. And Labour fights that election much better. Relative to previous elections in the 20th century, it's better resourced. It it runs a very tight campaign by the standards of the the 1940s, 1950s. So, uh, you know, those, those are the reasons. And ultimately... Lots, though not all, of the British people thought Churchill was a good war leader, but they didn't think he'd be a good leader into peace. Um, and and they were right about that because, uh, you know, as his subsequent record as a peacetime prime minister would show, <laughs> he wasn't very good at peacetime premiership. <laughs> so a couple of months before that election, we had VE Day, which we're um, very soon going to come up to the 75th anniversary of. What kind of a moment was that for the people of Britain? Well, varied by by where they are. So I think, you know, lots of them are not at home, uh, particularly if they're young men, they're away from home. For soldiers in Europe, it's a, you know, even there, it depends where they are. You know, they might be still engaged in military duties, guarding prisoners or uh, looking out for Germans who haven't heard that uh, the war's ended. Or they might have just liberated a brewery and they're going to be royally drunk. So, you know, you see a a great variety there, I think. Then as you come closer to home, you know, regional celebrations look very different. People are very grateful the war's ended. Lots of them are exhausted. The work, of course, doesn't, you know, this is an era in which um, household chores, including shopping, have to be done 
all the time. You don't go and do your big shop from the supermarket. So, you know, VE day is meant to be a, a, a holiday, but it's not a holiday if you're a housewife who's got to go and queue up for bread from the bakers. Or you've got to spend your day making a victory tea for the kids. <laughs> but I think there's a feeling of great relief. But one tinged with the expectation that the war's not going to be over soon, that there's still a conflict going on in the Far East, in which, you know, there are about a quarter of a million um, British service personnel still out in India and Southeast Asia. More will have to go out to win a war against Japan, which might last for another 18 months. So it's, and I think there's a sense of time off and a chance to celebrate for a moment. Uh, but the, 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 you know things aren't going to get easier, and it's notable that that that's the message that's being delivered by the king and by the prime minister as well. That this is a time to celebrate, but you know pretty soon it will be noses back to grindstones because because the tremendous hard work of the war is going to continue. So is it not really then until VJ Day that you get a sense of closure or finality? Well, for whom? You know, this is a period in which you've got a sense of triumph and a sense of pride in the country, not least because the war seems to act as a validation for lots of British systems. You know, it's gone through the war without invasion, without starvation, without uh, the overthrow of a regime. You know, that's really strange in European context. It's managed to remain broadly democratic under the strain of war. You know, these are astonishing achievements made much easier by by being a resource-rich, globally powerful nation. There's a sense of relief that people will be coming home, but none of that's immediate, you know, and lots of those service personnel are going to be away for a long time yet. So I think that if you're in the fortunate position that you're at home with all of your loved ones on VE Day or VJ Day, then it's a time to celebrate because you're you're going to be all right, <laughs> yeah. But if you're somebody who's lost someone during the war, what have you got to celebrate? You know, maybe maybe it feels like everybody else is celebrating and your world is still in bits. You know, again, if you're thinking about how do you tell the history of that moment, I think you've got to try and and recreate all of those ambiguities and the sense that what does it mean to talk about what do people feel. We'll all have lived through moments of where we feel like, well, maybe the nation's united or, or, or everybody's feeling a similar way. But that doesn't mean that you don't have your own individual experience of it. And part of our job as historians, I think, is to try and give those different versions of what the past might have meant. Your book takes a story up to 1947. By that point, how different a country is Britain from what you started with at the start of your first volume? How different is Britain um, from when I started? Well, it's it's lost its its Indian Empire. You know that that's a really profound change in terms of the power that it's able to exercise around the globe. Whether it's able to find uh, manpower to uh, defend and secure the empire, not least from imperial inhabitants who don't want to be part of the empire anymore. Its, it's external economic position is still tremendously difficult because it's used up. The dollar loan they got to try and tide it through reconstruction uh, in 1945, and uh, it's had to retreat behind um, much more restrictive controls. It can't um, have its its currency floated internationally, and yet it's still very powerful. Its people are still relatively very rich. They've experienced a period of great global insecurity in conditions of relative security themselves. You know, they they haven't had to go through genocide or occupation. They've experienced these things externally. 
right? and just externally they're shocking and they 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 change how people think about the world but there isn't a great division in the uk as there would be in france for example between those who collaborated and those who resisted and all of these things will be important for the, the post-war it's one which is more national and less international in terms of its its outlook i think one of the effects actually on all combatants during the war is that they, they go through a great international moment in the middle years of the conflict but from 1944 onwards as as people start to think about what will happen in the post-war and governments try to uh, make sure that they're the ones who benefited from it those arguments about you know whose sacrifice meant what means that that Britain and the Soviet Union and America all become more nationalist in their their wartime mythology because they all want to say, well, if we if we sacrifice so much, we you know, therefore we ought to benefit from the peace. You know, at home, Britain's moved towards a, a a system which will look more universally after the welfare of its inhabitants, which would be the traditional way of looking at the great post forty five change. But I think, you know, you, you would probably also want to look at the external security environment and say it's moving into a, a Cold War and it's taken the decision to build its own atomic bomb. And these are also things which are going to influence that post-war period just as much as decisions about how you, you divvy up um, uh, resources at a national level when it comes to welfare. As we did allude to a little bit earlier, there are quite a lot of myths have grown up about Britain in the Second World War that are commonplace today. Are there any in particular that the work you've done would seek to challenge? I gave up on challenging myths a long time ago, right? Because myths, you know, it's, it's, it's not historians' job to tell people which myths to believe. They'll just believe them whether we like it or not. I think I'd, if I can encourage people to think about why they think what they think, then that's actually what we ought to be doing. And that helps to develop a much more critical citizenry who are prepared for the challenges of the 21st century right otherwise all that happens is i you know i replace their set of myths with my set of myths <laughs> um, i'm not sure that's a, that's a good outcome but i i mean i think the things that i would ask people to think about are an insular story of britain versus one that's international and imperial so do you tell the story of britain just in terms of the island nation defending itself in 1940 or do you think about it being an international great power wielding military force against other people and extracting resources from a colossal global empire? Poverty versus wealth. So very often, again, it's a uh, it's become a story of plucky Britain managing without enough resources to do what it wanted, rather than you know Britain being able to one way or another draw on resources from around the world in order to develop fighting forces that were incredibly powerful right the way through the war. And I think the, the the last one might be about fighting versus home front. So you know, there's a lot of brilliant scholarship being done about the Second World War at the moment. And it, I think it's, it's really nice to have the feeling that we're heading into a kind of golden age in terms of, of, of the historians who are looking at it. A great set of younger scholars coming up who I think are going to really move on our understanding of how we think about the war. But there's still quite a division between histories of the home front and histories of the fighting fronts and those tend to be told separately but actually i think the important thing is to see them as being combined that actually both at the level of individual experience that civilian workers are constantly in touch with service personnel and and at the level of what decisions can the the state make about how it deploys its resources this really is a total conflict 
involving civilians and service uh, service men and women, and that that requires a form of total history where you try to 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 show all the interconnections between them. And I mean, at the moment in the coronavirus pandemic, quite a few politicians and commentators have sought to compare our reaction to how Britain handled the privations of war. Do you think those comparisons are valid or helpful in any way? If they're helpful, I don't care whether they're valid. If the key requirement at the moment is that we persuade people to stay in their houses and the idea that they are somehow replicating the behaviour of 75 years ago encourages people to do that, who am I as a historian to try to, to debunk that myth? It would be actively unuseful of me to say, you know, to try and puncture it. The world does not need another hot take from a historian about the coronavirus as it tries to grapple with this pandemic. That being said, if you look at the you know, the British civilian experience of the war, actually I'm not sure the Blitz is the most helpful comparison because that's about a highly traumatic and external assault from an enemy force against British cities, which is relatively short-lived. And often the reactions to that will be all the reactions that you would expect people to have, which are panic in the short term, confusion of people trekking away to try and get away from these these awful things that have happened to them. And the resilience comes not because they're British, it comes because cities are quite resilient under enemy bombing. Right. The Luftwaffe demonstrates that a bit in 1940-41. To be honest, the RAF and the, the American Air Force demonstrate it even more in 1943 to 1945 when they'll bomb German cities much more effectively and comprehensively than the German Air Force may have managed in the UK. And they still don't break the life of those cities. Cities are astonishingly resilient under these aerial attacks. The better comparison would be what happens during the middle years of the war, I think, actually, when it's about prolonged restriction and rather boring effort for a conflict that it's really hard to see unless you're on the front line. That seems to me to be a better uh, comparison to what lots of us, if we're not if we're not healthcare workers uh, and we haven't got ill yet, we have to restrict our lives in order to help other people. Well, that's probably a better comparison to that sort of 1942, 43 moment where people are rationed, they got to work incredibly hard. In their case, unlike our case, they're earning lots of money. They just can't, they can't spend it on anything. You know, and I, I think the questions that that raises about how you keep people going and whether that's with regulation and compulsion or whether it's by offering them a vision of a better future are ones that should be really relevant for for all of us, particularly for national leaders today. That was Dan Todman. Britain's War, A New World, 1942 to 1947, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Dan also contributed to a piece in the May edition of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and includes a special VE Day supplement, as well as articles on medieval magic, a Victorian political crisis, the mistresses of Charles II, and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us on Sunday for a special episode on everything you wanted to know about the Vikings. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.